So if you've got a Bible, grab it, turn with me to Hebrews. We're going through our series, we're back in it, uh, through our series in Hebrews. If you don't own a Bible, you'll see them uh, on the ground at the end of your row. Ask somebody to pass down one of those. We are going to be using that today, so um, if you don't normally open your Bible, do it today, because we're going to actually be flipping around in the actual Bible. Of course, you can use your phone if you want to use your phone uh, to look up the Scripture as well. I'll just assume if you're using your phone that you're reading the Bible. So, Hebrews. Uh, What you'll see in the text today, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to dabble into chapter 10 as well, but what you'll see is that actually chapter 8, 9, and 10 are really the same idea repeated over and over again, and so it's so... Anytime you repeat something, of course, what? It's important to you, right? Like, I know that leaving my underwear on the bathroom is not a good idea because I hear it over and over and over again. So I know this is very important to my wife that I do not do that, and I'm getting better. Trust me. She's not in here right now. Tell her that I'm a good husband when you see her, okay? I'm working on it. But anytime you hear this idea over and over again, you know that it's important. And so this idea... This idea of the shadow versus the real. We'll see it again today. This is important to the author of Hebrews, the preacher, as he's writing to the church in Rome. As he's writing to the church in Rome. And what we'll see today of specific importance in this general category of the shadow versus the real is the idea of the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus. And so we're going to actually split this talk because we see it in chapter 9 and we see it in chapter 10. We're actually going to do a two-part talk here on the blood of Jesus because it's so central to the entire argument of Hebrews and he spends so much time on it that we're going to spend ourselves two weeks talking about the blood of Jesus. Why is the blood so important Why is the blood so important? And what we'll see is that this centrality of the blood of Jesus, if we don't understand that, if we don't really get what is going on here, we will struggle to cultivate, which is what I believe uh, we're meant to do, what I believe the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to do, to cultivate a true heart of a sacrificer which is to say the true heart of a worshiper. And so we have these mixed ideas about what does it mean to really sacrifice and be a sacrificer and be a worshiper of God. And so we've split this. And and so uh, today we're really looking at the second half of this little phrase, of Jesus. And next week we'll look at the blood. Of course it all ties in, but this is where we'll be. So if you pray with me, we'll ask God to, to, to give us Give us his words. Father, we thank you for the chance to come together as a community, to consider your word together as a body, and we just pray that you would be here, that you'd be present in this place, both uh, through my words as as I preach, but also in the ears of those who listen. Lord, speak to us. Help us to hear you clearly. Help us to know what it is that you want us to walk away from as we go tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, August 5th, 2012, big day for me, big day for me, got married, I got married, and come on, <laughs> praise Jesus, that's right, we thought she was going to run, but she didn't, uh, and you know, the night before, you know, some people get real nervous the night before, I was not nervous at all, in fact, I slept great, I slept great. I wasn't nervous. You know, some guys have to, like, watch Braveheart the night before and, like, <laughs> really pump themselves up. Not me, man. I wasn't nervous at all. Uh, the day came, and if you, uh, I don't know, was anybody at my wedding? I think a couple of you were at my wedding. Come on, Ash. Give me a woo-woo. Yeah, Ashley was there. And uh, it was hot, wasn't it? It was, like, so hot. It was, like, 180 degrees. <laughs> I mean, it was, like, it was, like, it was, it wasn't 180, but it was 97 degrees, which for Seattleites is like 180 degrees, man. I mean, if you're from Louisiana, no problem, but for Seattle, 97, people were passing out. It was crazy. It was so hot. And uh, my hair was all messed up. You know, I didn't realize it until we got the pictures back, and I saw my hair was doing this weird curly thing. It was a little bit longer then, and I have like some wave in my hair, and the humidity was so bad that it had curled up, and I'm, I'm looking at these pictures, I'm like, why didn't anybody tell me my hair looked like that? 
these are my wedding pictures. So, you know, I never send anybody a picture with both me and Allie in it. I just send them pictures of Allie. <laughs> I hated my hair that day, you know? Dang, somebody should have told me. But uh, the other thing that happened is Allie, you know, it was so hot that she had to take her dress off between the pictures and the ceremony. And uh, I remember somebody came up to me, and they said, oh, I'm like, where's Allie? They're like, oh, she had to take her dress off. And I'm like, well, is she planning on putting it back on? <laughs> and, uh, and then I was thinking, oh, shoot, if she's taking her dress off, does this mean I have to take my tux off, or what's the plan here? Well, the ceremony came, and Allie appeared fully dressed. I was excited about that. And... Uh, it wasn't until that moment, right? I mean, it's like we were at this outdoor venue, and it was kind of like down a hill, and so the bridesmaids are walking out, and it's like they got to like go on these switchbacks just to get down to where the ceremony was, and it's like 97 degrees. It's so hot. I'm like, come on, two by two. Let's do this. Let's go two by two, but no, one at a time, you know, and they teach you, right? I mean, they're like, window shop, window shop, you know, you're kind of just, you're looking as you're going down, teach you to walk real slow. Man, I was just like, speed it up. So hot. But then, it happened. Then, Allie turned around the corner. And for the first time, for the first time, the weight of the event hit me. And I realized I was getting married. And she was, of course, stunning and beautiful but more than that, my mind went to all that I had read about how Christ is our groom and we, the church, are His bride. And I thought in that moment, everything that I was feeling as I watched my wife come around the turn and I saw her for the first time, Christ thinks that about us. She was beautiful. She was radiant. I knew in that moment that I would give my life for her. And Christ thinks that way about us. Didn't hit me until that moment. Up until that point, you know, I'd always kind of been to weddings and experienced them and, and, and kind of thought they were like Groundhog Day. It was like the same thing over and over and over again until it's like annoying. It's like this is the same thing. You, you read the same three scriptures. You sing the same four songs. <laughs> Flowers, they all look the same. I know you women in the room don't think that. In fact, it seems like all wedding dresses look the same, too. I'm speaking for men here. I'm speaking for men here. I don't want to get ourselves in a lot of trouble, but they're just white dresses, right? Uh, not my wife's, of course. I should stop. It's going to be a lonely, uh, lonely night. Luckily, she's not in here right now. She's uh, with the kids. <laughs> but it's that idea. It seems like they're all the same. They're all the same. Until that moment when I realized the significance, the weight of everything behind the ceremony, everything behind what was actually happening, everything behind the reasons why we do things, it all clicked for me. It was no longer just ritual or ceremony, but it had all this meaning, all these layers to it. And as the ceremony went on, I, I realized more and more the meaning. I experienced it. Everything that went on, right? Uh, for instance, right, we have, uh, we did the candle lighting, and you know, it's like, oh, well, it's just wax and light and no big deal, but then you start to think about it, and you realize what the candle lighting represents is, is two people coming together, but it's not just two people coming together, it's that actually God is a part of this new relationship, and He's not just some external outside force sort of watching the whole thing, but He wants to be a part of it. He actually dwells in us, and so all of this meaning begins to come out, right? He's knitting two families together, and you start to see that it's not just ceremony, it's not just ritual, but there's all this meeting behind it. You know, another thing is the rings, right? In fact, it's funny, I realized I forgot to bring my <laughs> ring tonight, uh, but it is important. The ring is very important. <laughs> it's very important. It's not just some uh, piece of metal or platinum or gold. 
or plastic. I don't know where you're at here tonight. We've got a lot of young people. Could be plastic. But it's a token of this forever nature of the circle, of the ring. But it's not just a, a commitment that you're making with one another. It also symbolizes that God himself has made a commitment to us, that he has promised us, that he's made an oath with us, that he's promised to love and to cherish us forever. And so these pictures begin to be filled with all this meaning. They're not just dead rituals or tokens, but they're pictures of a more real, a more permanent truth. And so for the first time, the boredom of weddings began to leave me. And I started to love weddings. And in fact, one of my very favorite things to do now is to officiate somebody's wedding, to get to be a part of this sort of uh, play, this sort of divine picture that God has given us to show things. In fact, God is the divine cosmic playwright. And he gives us all these different scenes and all these plays and all these pictures so that we can understand truth, the truth that's behind them. So we have this play called marriage and through it God shows us the layers and the beauties of commitment and love and sacrifice, shared mission. And as he's writing this play, we get to participate in it. This is God's creation. It's marriage. And two weeks ago, we talked about another play, another scene that God was writing. We had this idea of the tabernacle and the tent, and he gave us all these instructions on this is how you go about the work of the, of, of the temple and the tabernacle. These are the ways you do the sacrifices. These are the, uh, the, the dress that you wear. This is how you do things. And it's all part of this play, all part of the scene that God gives us so that we might understand not just the earthly tent, but what's happening in the heavenly tent. So there's something more happening. There's the earthly, and then there's the heavenly. There's the shadow, and then there's the real. And so God gives us these plays that we might understand them better. And it's not to say that the thing, the ceremony, the ritual, the tent in itself is not valuable. In fact, it's invaluable because, because it's a picture. Not because it saves but because it's a picture of what does save. It's a picture for us so that we might understand when we see the real thing, because we've seen the play, because we've seen God's scene, we can understand, yes, that's the real thing. So we need the scenes, we need the plays, we need the ceremony, we need the ritual so that we don't miss the real thing. So today when we look at Hebrews 9, what we'll see again is that this cosmic divine playwright, God himself has given us an important picture in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, through the people of Israel, this picture, this scene of sacrifice and the necessity for blood. But he gave it beforehand so that we would recognize when the truer, better, real sacrifice came so that we might fully grasp what is actually happening when we saw the real thing. But here's the problem. So often, we miss the real thing. We miss the real thing and we settle for the symbol. And when we settle for the symbol... We never experience the actual cleansing power of grace. And eventually, the symbol, the ritual, the ceremony becomes dull and boring. It becomes dull and boring. So read with me now Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll start in verse 1. Now when the first covenant so excuse me now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness for a tent was prepared the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence it is called the holy place behind 
The second curtain was the second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar and the incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was the golden urn, holding the manna, and Aaron's staff and budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory and overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. Now what's going on here? He's explaining how the tent, how the tabernacle worked. And you can already see there's all this detail. There's all these things to be done. And then he goes on to say, but now we can't even speak in detail. He goes on. These preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly, which is to say over and over and over and over again, all the time, into the first section, performing the ritual duties. But into the second section, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. Here's what's going on. He's setting up for us this picture of these religious activities that they were required to do over and over and over again. And we saw a little bit of this back in Hebrews 7, where it says uh, there were, the priesthood was many in number. Why was it many in number? Because there was so much work to be sun, done. There were so many sacrifices that had to be offered. And in fact, the temple was open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so uh, regularly, work is being done. People are going and offering sacrifices for their sin. They're going through all these steps over and over again. Every hour of the day, 2 p.m., 7 p.m., 3 a.m., the priests are on duty. In fact, they were never allowed to sit because sitting would imply that the work was done, but the work was never done. Why was the work never done? Because again and again, you would have to come because your conscience was never clean. Your conscience was never light because again and again and again, you felt the weight of your sin. You felt the weight of your conscience. Why? Because the temple system was never meant to cleanse your conscience. Look with me at verse nine, or ver, uh, second half of verse 9. According to this arrangement, that's the old arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Here's what he's saying. The reason why you have to come again and again and again, the temples never close and the priests never get to sit down, and again and again you have to offer sacrifices, bulls and goats and grain offerings. The reason why all of this is is because those offerings do not touch the inner man. They only deal with the outer man. They only deal with the ceremonial cleanliness, not with the internal being. And why is that? Because the tabernacle, the tent, the temple system was just a shadow, a symbol, and the sacrifices, a symbolic ritual that painted a picture for what? For a, more, a fuller, greater reality which was yet to come. You see this? The problem with the ritual, with the symbolic sacrifices of the temple system, was that you would walk into the temple full of guilt, your conscience heavy, you'd walk in and you'd go to the priest, you'd explain what had happened, and you'd say, what should I do? And he would tell you, you need to sacrifice your best goat. You get your goat, you'd sacrifice your best goat. You'd say, I've completed that. Now what do I do? And they say, that's it. And you'd walk out just as heavy, just as full, just as guilty as you felt before you did your sacrifice. And then you'd come again and again. Now you were following the rules. You were doing what you were told to do. But why didn't it work? Because it was never meant to work. It was meant to show you that you could not actually cleanse yourself. Now the story is no different today. Even though we don't bring bulls or goats, at least none of you have yet. 
But the story's the same. If you've never experienced this, you probably will. Many of us walk into the church because we feel guilty, because we realize that we've sinned against God, and we walk in, and you know what happens when we come in lots of times? We come in and we hear from the preacher, yep, you screwed up. You screwed up. And then we get up and we sing, we do whatever, and then we walk out and we feel probably even more guilty than when we walked in. Why does that happen? What is going on? Something's not working right. Something's broken. Now here's what's happening. Whether it's in ancient Israel or it's today in the church, something is not working correctly. And it goes something like this. And all of our coming and all of our going to religious services and doing the rituals and trusting in the symbols, we forget, or we were never taught in the first place, that the symbol or the ritual or the sacrifices that we give or the sacrifice even of going to church, it was never meant to save you. Because we were never meant to save ourselves or to cleanse ourselves. And so what we've done and what ancient Israel did and, 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 and every human being since has done this, we make the symbol sacred. We make the symbol sacred instead of the thing which the symbol is meant to illuminate. That's the sacred, but we make the symbol sacred and then we realize that it never does what it's supposed to do. It never clears or cleans our conscience. And so then we do one of two things. We either multiply our sacrifices, multiply our worship of the symbol, multiply our rituals, which is to say we just try harder. You know, I have this picture of, you know, you see, this happens in other religions as well. You see these sort of shrines or altars, and they just have tons of different uh, idols. You think of maybe, you know, Buddhists, all these pictures of Buddha, and they're why are there so many of them? We do the same thing in Christianity. Maybe it's with a uh, crucifix, or it's like, you know, how many Christmas trees do you have in your house? Like 83 Christmas trees in my house. It's not working. I don't know what's going on. But we just try harder. We, just, we need more symbol, more symbol. So that's one thing. Or the other thing we do is we realize that it's not working, and again and again we realize that it doesn't work, and then eventually we convince ourselves that we're actually not dirty. We convince ourselves that, you know, I'm supposed to smell like this. I don't need to shower. I don't need a bath. This must be how I'm meant to smell. Trust me. Y'all stink. Y'all need a bath. I need a bath. That's not the way we're meant to smell. And so what you see is this making the sacred or the symbol sacred. You see this all the time. And like one thing that happens in the church and it's happened historically and there's all sorts of things that we can say but just like one example of this, we're going to sing a song later tonight, Jesus Paid It All, and it's like uh, we've got a cajon in here, you know, and we've got, you know, a super hip, you know, pop star up here, you know, doing worship for us. <laughs> we've got no choir, man, the organ's not fired up right now. And, you know, 30 years ago, if you had played Jesus Paid It All, with a cajon or drums on the stage. I mean, there would be women swooning in the aisles, being like, what's happened to our church? Like, oh, no, <laughs> get away. You know, like, don't do it. Because, you know, the idea was the drums. That's not an instrument of the Lord. And you could show them the text, and you could say, no, look here. In the Old Testament, it says, use your instruments to praise the Lord. And it wouldn't matter, because we've decided that drums are of the devil. Now, before you, uh, let me just say this, because I have it in my notes, cause, so I want to say it. <laughs> I mean, women fainting in the aisle, I mean, men getting very upset. We're talking onions are boiling, you know, and then people pick up those onions and they throw them at Brandon. Brandon, you ever been hit by an onion? A boiled onion? Pff, you don't want to, man. That hurts. Onions boiling, man. Come on. People are upset. 
Now, before you think, oh, man, we would never do that. We would never act like that. We would never make the form of worship more important than who we are worshiping. You know what? I guarantee you probably walked into your grandparents' church and you saw a choir on the stage and you saw an organ and you thought to yourself, oh, man, cold, dead religion. And you know what I'd say to you? Moron. I'd say you're a moron. You're doing the exact same thing. You're doing the exact same thing that the people that don't like drums do. You're making the form of worship more important than the worship itself. And God would say, what are you doing? You're making the symbol sacred or the ritual sacred or the ceremony sacred. It's not the sacred thing. I'm the sacred thing. I'm the one you worship. It doesn't matter how you do it as long as your heart is directed towards me. You see, God's not after our rituals or our sacrifices. He's after our heart. He's after our heart. He always wants our heart, not our sacrifices. If we don't get this, if we don't get that what God is after is our heart and not our ritual, not our ceremony, not our tradition, we're going to miss out on grace. And we're not going to come into the presence of God and experiencing the cleansing power of His grace. This was such a persistent problem in ancient Israel. They missed this over and over again to the point where much of the prophets in the Old Testament, you have all these prophets, much of what they talked about was this very thing. So I want to I go there with you real quick. If you turn to Psalm 51 with me. Psalm 51. If you've got one of these uh, big, thick black Bibles, it's going to be on page 602. It's almost right in the middle of your Bible, Psalm 51. Turn there with me. Does anybody have it in the, in the smaller Bible? What page no, number there is for Psalm 51? 304? 305. Okay. Are we there? I want you to read along with me here, okay? Excuse me, six, 601, if you're in the, big, in the big black Bible. Here we go. This is a psalm written by King David. Not me, King David. Verse 1. And now hear, hear, hear this idea of needing to be cleansed, right? Here we go. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Now it's believed that this was written after he had cheated on his wife with Bathsheba. And then you know what he did? He went and killed Bathsheba's husband so that no one would ever find out that he had impregnated Bathsheba. Deep sin. But yet he's writing a great psalm to the Lord. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me out. Or cast me not away from your presence and not from your Holy Spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth 
will declare your praise. Here we go. Listen to this. Verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Here it is. What is true worship? Here it is. The sacrifices of God, what He wants from us, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. He doesn't want our sacrifices. He doesn't need our sacrifices, and we'll see why in a second. What he wants is our heart, and he wants it to be broken and contrite and recognizing our sin against him. That's what he wants. Okay, that's not the only place. Turn now, turn with me here uh, to Isaiah 29. It's just going to be a a few flips to your right. So just like, boom, one, you might not go three. Okay, might go four. Four small flips, boom. In my Bible, it's 750. I've got one of the big black Bibles. Okay. Isaiah 29, Isaiah 29, verse 13. Isaiah 29, verse 13. Here we go. Are we there? I love to hear those pages flipping. Flipping pages. Okay. Verse 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their, and their fear of me as a commandment taught by men. See how angry he is here. See how disgusted he is with this form of honoring God with your mouth alone, with your lips, saying the right things, saying the right prayers, singing the right songs, but your heart is far from them. Here's what he says, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will again do a wonderful thing. And wonderful is not great here. It's like wonderful, like crazy bad. Wonderful thing with the people, with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Okay, keep flipping with me. A couple more big flips. Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. A couple bigger flips there. Amos is harder to find. Don't give up. It's verse, or in my big black Bible, 973. What's it in the smaller one? Anybody there? 498. Amos chapter 5, verse 21. This is important. I've got to wait till everybody's there because the first two words are powerful. The first two words are powerful right here. Ready? Here we go. Amos chapter 5, verse 21. I hate. Okay, when God says, I hate, that's a big deal. This, you don't see this a lot. I hate. Now, whatever's coming next must be something terrible. It must be like murder, adultery, incest. It must be something terrible because God hates it, right? I despise your feasts. What? Your feasts? And here he's talking about religious feasts. That's what he hates? That's what he despises? Yeah. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. Here's what he says to do. But let justice roll down like waters and the righteous righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We elevate these rituals, these ceremonial sacrifices, these offerings, these assemblies. We offer these to God, and you know what He says? If our heart's not there, if our heart's not worshiping Him, He hates them. Because we've missed out on the whole point of the ritual, the whole point of the symbol, the whole point of the ceremony, the whole point of coming to church. We've missed out on it. He's not pleased with it. He's not pleased if we pour ourselves into the ritual, but our heart is far from Him. He's not pleased with us if we come in here and we sing about justice, but then we walk out and we show no justice to the world around us. 
Here's what it's like. It's like on a wedding day, you spend all your time, all your money, all your energy thinking about, planning, worrying about the wedding day. And the, actually, the person that you're going to marry is an afterthought. It's like, man, I don't care. Uh, I just want to get married, and I don't care who I get married. Just bring up a woman to be up there with me. That's what it's like to God when we focus all on the ritual, all on the symbol, and not on him. Friends, the wedding day is just a picture of the greater thing, which is marriage, and the wedding day is just the beginning. Yet we throw all of our time and all of our resources and all of our attention on the wedding day, and we barely ever think about the marriage. I need to just do a a quick sort of press pause. Ladies, All you single ladies? All you single ladies. The man you will marry will have an incredible influence on your children and your children coming to know the God of the universe. And if you care about that, Listen, if you care about your children, if you care about their spiritual growth and destiny, think about the man that you're going to marry. Listen, a little loneliness now is much better than a lifetime of loneliness. The wedding day is just the beginning. It's just the symbol of the greater thing. Unpause. We're working. We're working hard here at Sedaris to build up some men worthy of you. (laughs) Worthy to raise your children. Pray for the men of this church. Pray for the men of this city that they would come to know God and fear Him above all else. Pray that men like that would come about. Men, let's go. Let's get to work. Okay, read with, flip back now to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Here we go. We've got to fly because we've got some good stuff to go. Let's go. Hebrews, actually, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Let's go. Verse 4 says this. Now we'll explain why, why all this is true. Here we go. Verse 4. Chapter 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Flip back to chapter 9, look at verse 12. He, that's Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And this word redemption here has the meaning or the quality of having been paid the price for release. So when I redeem something, I pay the price so that it's now released from its previous ownership. Go back to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 12 says this. But when Christ had offered for all time, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he did what? He sat down at the right hand of God. Remember what I said about sitting down? You sit down when something is finished. The priests could never sit down because it was never finished. We were never clean. Our conscience was always dirty. It was always heavy. But Christ, once for all, sacrificed, and so he sat down. It is finished. Look at 10.17. These are beautiful truths. Then he adds, God said this in the Old Testament, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. No longer any offering for sin. Because Christ has made the offering once for all. So here's what God says. He says, we are closed for business. We're closed for business. I'm no longer taking sacrifices. Don't bring them. I'm not taking them. 
Why? Because it's already been finished by Christ. The altar is already covered with Christ's blood. The blood of my son, God says. It's already completed. No room for any more blood here. The, Christ of, uh, the blood of Christ covers it all. It's Jesus' blood, already spilled. It's the salvation of Jesus. It's His way. God doesn't need your blood. He wants your heart. This can be a really hard truth if you're a rule follower. If you're a rule follower, this is probably hard to hear. Why? Because we love to check the boxes. We love to complete the tasks. We love to do what we're ordered to do. And in Christ, God says, it's taken care of. I've already done it. But until we get that, until we accept it, our conscience will never be clean. No matter how well we check the boxes, if we don't understand that it's already taken care of, we'll never receive His grace. Now we love to give ourselves grace. And we do it of two ways. I mentioned it earlier. We either clean ourselves by doing all these ritualistic cleaning, but that never cleans the inner man, only the outer. The other thing we love to do is convince ourselves that our consciences aren't dirty. I think this happens all the time, inside and outside of the church. But don't buy it. Clean men don't need showers. Don't buy the cult of self-esteem because you're not that great. You're not a good person. Think of everything that you've done this week. No man comes in here fully clean. I mean, just think of God's Ten Commandments. He gives us ten pretty easy commandments. I could teach Oliver, the oldest child in our church, I could teach Oliver the Ten Commandments. He'd get them pretty well. I'd say, Oliver, please don't kill anybody. That's bad. Okay, got it. I could say, you know, don't worship any other God except the one true God. Okay, I got it. You know, Oliver, leave your neighbor's wife alone. Well, I probably wouldn't. <laughs> I probably wouldn't focus on that one, but, I mean, it's in there. You know, these are pretty simple things. Oh, I can do that. But then Jesus reminds us, even if you looked at your neighbor's wife lustfully, you've already sinned in your heart. Even if you hate your brother, you've committed murder. And so we're breaking the simplest of commands over and over again. Don't buy the cult of self-esteem. You do smell because you need to be cleansed. Here's how it looks for me often. Oftentimes I will lay in bed and the, the accuser will come after me. The accuser is Satan. And he will remind me of all the ways that I've fallen short. All the ways that I've broken God's commands. All the ways that I've fallen short of the glory of God. All the ways that I am guilty. Has this ever happened to you? And it eats away at me. And I start beating myself up, thinking how much I've screwed up today. How I could have done better. How I could have spent more time with God. Again and again, these things, they eat away at us and the accuser keeps pushing them in. But when you get grace, when you understand that the blood of Jesus has already paid for your sin, has already paid the full price, that it's the blood of Jesus that covers it all, then when the accuser comes in and he whispers in your ear and he tells you how terrible you are, you know what you say? Well, first you smile and you say, you bet I am. You're right on. I'm the worst. I screwed up so much today. I'm definitely guilty. I'm definitely a sinner. But you know what? The blood of Jesus covers me. And so this thing that can be the death of me, the accusing, the guilt, actually becomes a blessing in my life because it reminds me of what Christ has already done. Do you see that? It becomes a blessing rather than a curse. And so you say, bring it on. Come on. Tell me how bad I am. I am. Tell me more. Because Jesus has bought my forgiveness 
Oh, that we would understand this and embrace this and actually believe that this is true. And so no longer am I afraid of the accuser coming to me and telling me all the ways I screwed up. Instead, I say, come on in. Because Jesus has paid the price. No more shame. No more hiding our junk. You know, the world deals with our, their junk by just hiding from it. No more hiding. Stepping out into the light. Claiming the blood of Jesus for yourself. No longer a slave to the dead works of rituals to try to cleanse yourself. But freedom earned by Christ and a clear conscience that comes with it. Oh, that we might be confident and proclaim the blood of Jesus. That's why it's so important. Of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. Now, I don't want you leaving saying, Pastor Dave, all that talk, I know there's some of you in here, that's just going to lead to cheap grace. That's just going to lead to loose living. People are just going to take advantage of grace and sin more and more and more. Here's the deal. If that's what you think of when you hear that the blood of Jesus has covered your sin, if you just think of all the ways you can abuse that, then you don't actually get it, that your heart is not changed. And so I'm not worried about those people. We've got to start someplace else if that's what comes to mind. But that we might be free from the striving, the self-cleansing, free from the accusations, and we claim Jesus. Now, if you're caught up in the busyness of ritual, if you're caught up in the busyness even of the traditions of Christmas, here's what you need to do. Look at verse 11, 9-11. It says this, But when Christ appeared, the ten verses before are reminding us of the busyness of the temple system, of all the things that we have to do, all the things that we have to remember, all the things that the priests are doing. And then it says, verse 11, but when Christ appeared. When Christ appears, it changes everything. It's all different now. Here's what he's saying. He's saying in all the busyness and all the things going around, look up. Jesus is standing right there. In the busyness of people moving about, he's standing in the room. Sometimes I get so mad at myself because I'm, I'm, I'm watching TV or something and, and somebody walks into the room and I can't take my eye off the TV. What's going on? There's this great human being in front of me and I can't even focus on them. Or maybe you've been to like a sporting event with a great Jumbotron and then you realize you've been watching the Jumbotron for the last quarter when the live game is right in front of you. Have you ever done that? I also realized this week I'm a terrible grocery shopper. I mean, my wife gives me a list, get these four things, and it takes me 45 minutes to get out of that place. I mean, I'm staring right at the section, and I cannot see what I need to see. Why is that? Why do I have such a hard time seeing the vanilla extract? <laughs> cannot find it. Do we really need the vanilla? Oh, you need the vanilla, man. Here's what I hope. This Advent season, as we prepare for the coming of the King, that we can slow down our metabolism. Now, hear, hear me closely. Not the metabolism of your body. I don't want you coming back here after Christmas. Day. I put on 15 pounds. I slowed that metabolism down. And then I ate a bunch of Christmas cookies. No, slow down the metabolism of your heart. Turn down the busyness of the holidays and actually see Jesus because you know what? He's standing in the room. You're singing songs about them. You're hearing them on the radio. There's probably an Advent scene somewhere in your house and he's sitting in your room but you never look at him because you look at all the other traditions and rituals but you never see Jesus. In fact, his name is in the name of the season. Every time somebody says Christmas, they're saying Christ, but how many people actually see Jesus? God sent His Son, the Lamb of God, sent Him into the world to pay it all. Don't worship the symbol or the ritual, the tradition. Worship the Lamb of God, slain to take away the sins of the world. 
Don't mix it with anything. Don't put any chasers in there like, I know it's the blood of Jesus, but I just got to sprinkle a little bit of my own vanilla extract in here. Nothing. If you put a chaser in there, if you mix anything with the blood of Jesus, you're spitting in God's face. You're cheapening his grace because you're saying that he's not enough, that the blood of Jesus is not enough. It's him alone. That's the good news. It's already taken care of. We've been purified from the dead works of symbols and rituals by what? The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. We're free to stop worrying about ourselves and we can start focusing on Jesus and living for Him and His eternal kingdom, His work here right now. Make sense? 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth spilled His blood. And it's nothing but the blood of Jesus that you need for forgiveness and cleansing. So today, if you've sinned, if your conscience is not clean, if you feel guilty before a perfect and holy God, then you're experiencing truth. And if you throw yourself upon the mercy of God, if you throw yourself at the feet of Jesus, and you claim for yourself His blood, then today, trusting that Jesus' blood is enough, that He's paid it in full, you know what Jesus says? He says, come. And He'll embrace you in His arms. This is for everyone. Even if you consider yourself not a Christian, this is for you. Even if your ritual is some moral ideal, and you think, if there is a God, He'll accept me if I live a good moral life. You're trusting in the wrong thing. You're trusting in a ritual. You're trusting in a tradition of morality. Stop worshiping the shadow and start worshiping the real deal. You need the blood of Jesus. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but you've never experienced the feeling of truly being clean. Maybe again and again you go through the rituals of Christianity, but you've never experienced a clean conscience. Stop trying to clean yourself. Jesus has already cleaned you by His blood. It's Jesus' blood. He doesn't need your bull. He doesn't need your goat. He needs your heart. And He wants it. And He sent His Son to die that He might have it. Pray with me. Father, we thank You. We thank You that the feeling we have of coming into church and never experiencing a clean conscience, that that's not how You want it to be, that, that You've done something about it, that You've given us a sacrifice that actually works. And it's not the sacrifice of our time or our money or our effort. It's Your sacrifice that You've already made Yourself through Your Son, Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice, His blood is what cleans us, what makes us pure, which washes us white as snow. It's His blood. If we just know, Lord, that we need that. Help us to see You. Help us to see Your Son this season that You sent Him to die so that we might live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.